Welcome to the Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is Amanda Clute, the editor-in-chief of Eater. I'm joined, of course, by Daniel Janine. Hi, course. Dan. Hey, Amanda Clute. We have Nigella Lawson today. Yes, Let's we see do. how quickly we can get to this interview. Uh, quick, who is Nigella? Nigella was uh, one of the first big food TV stars. She started in England, but uh, you know she was quickly picked up in the U.S. and kind of exploded early 2000s and is still going strong. Yeah, huge celebrity in the U.K. Written a bunch of books. Uh, really fun, mm-hmm. really intelligent, intellectual, mm-hmm. kind of dark. Yeah, she's dark. Yeah. I think like what what is different. You know, what What do I really love about her is that she, you know, she has a food show. A lot of people had a food show, have a food show. But when you listen to her in interviews, she's like crazy articulate and yeah. considers food in a way that is not um, maybe you wouldn't expect from someone who has been in so many TV shows. Great. So let's get right into it. Yeah. Uh, but before we do, we wanted to give a little shout out to our friend Bill Addison. Mm-hmm. He is our roving restaurant critic. You may uh, remember him from our episode, The Best Fed Man in the World. Yep. He is the best fed man in the world. And he is appearing on the Bon Appetit Foodcast uh, out today. So please go over there, listen to him chat with Adam Rappaport and Julia Kramer over at Bon Appetit. Uh, also, if you like this podcast, our podcast, please subscribe, give us a rating, share it with your friends and family and Twitter followers. Yep. And if you have any questions or suggestions for us, please email us at upsell at eater.com. So go check out Bill over at Bon Appetit and enjoy Nigella. Yeah. Nigella Lawson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You're nice here to be here because you have a new cookbook. It's called At My Table. Mm-hmm. You've written a number of cookbooks. So to start, we just wanted to know... What was the motivation behind this one specifically? What will your fans see that's different from the other ones? Do you know, I'm I'm not sure really that my books ever are enormously different from one another mm-hmm. any more than my television programs because the simple truth is is that if you write authentically, you have your voice and your range and that stays pretty consistent. Um, and I think the emphasis is very much on on home cooking but then I've always felt it important to talk about home cooking that's that was my original motivation for writing uh, a food book anyway which I came as a surprise to me that I did such a thing um, but but I I think that the food world gets so dominated by the professional and I think very strongly that that real cooking is what happens at home and so I suppose I felt I felt I wanted to to write about that again, um, not necessarily as um, in a systematic way, but that it somehow fuels every single recipe. And a lot of the recipes are inspired by food I've eaten in restaurants, but they just change in the in the way they're cooked at home. But I, I suppose the original, if I had to say, motivation for this book and what makes it different is I I've, I've written lots of books that maybe talk more about uh, life at it, as it's lived in the kitchen and by the stove, and I I suddenly realized. I suppose you get to a certain age and you think about your life and you reflect uh, a bit more. And I and I realised that I did see it as a series of tableau, which is around a table, both how the food changes or the people, the tables themselves. And I think that's really, that's how a life is lived mm-hmm. around a table. So that's why it felt important to me. Well, you heard that, that you've had the same team your yes. whole way through. Mm-hmm. And that's like unheard of, right? Yes. I mean, actually, right. since my second book... Um, so when I did my first book, I, I didn't have anyone, and um, I was asked. And then later, I was doing. I had it was sort of different. I had young children. I had a terminally ill husband. I had 
you know, a job to do. And people would say, get me a magazine. Can we come and do, mm. you know, pictures of food? We need to take pictures of you. And I said once, said, uh, I need some help. I can't do all the shopping and um, the shopping and the washing up and the prep and the, that. And also, you know, you have to be done up. Of course. And all that sort of thing. And so they sent someone to me and I said, uh, and I liked her. And I said, you know, well, would you work? I'm, I'm, because I had this idea for my second book then. And I said, I want to do a book about baking, which was unheard of at that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometime 1780 or something, wherever <laughs> it was. And um, I said, well, will you work for me for a month in, you know, January 1999? And she said, sure, yeah, okay. And then she hasn't left. Wow. Um, so that's, yes. And the I have the same designer. I will always have the same designer since I've, since my first book. So I I I mm-hmm. believe that's very important. And does that translate to the TV side too? You yes. work with the same crew. I do. Yes, and they you know we've all seen each other grow up and grow old, <laughs> um, and I like that. We also read that you control everything about your image, which was unique in the world of food TV. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, did you I know going into? I don't understand the phrase "control everything about your image." I don't even. What, I think what you image? wanted to write write all of the scripts for oh, the I show. No, no, and, no, no. no. I, I refuse to be scripted. I'm completely without a script. But the the final edit that comes. Together. I don't. No, no. So I I don't see the edit. Okay. Um, I don't do that. But I certainly am not scripted. Mm-hmm. Right. And I feel, you know, and, and I know that when I did something, in, uh, uh, you know, I did something here in the States, in L.A. for a while, and I wouldn't let them, I certainly wouldn't let them airbrush my tummy out. <laughs> <laughs> so, of were course, they my try- tummy sticks Were out. they trying to no, do that? No, I don't know if they were trying, but they do it as a matter of right. course. Mm-hmm. They, want to, they saw it as a flaw. I said, well, I eat. Of course, I've got a tummy. It's amazing. Did it take some convincing to get you to do your first TV show? Yes, it took an awful lot of. Yeah, I took an awful lot of convincing. I I didn't want to do it at all. And and, um, as a young journalist, to me anyway, I was a print journalist, not a food Mm -hmm. uh, journalist, but general journalist. But uh, I was a print journalist, and I did radio, and I. Uh, it was very important to be uh, to exist in words, not in as you say, as you say, image, which is um, a tiresome thing. Um, but so I agreed to, that I would do a television program if I could do it in my own home and without a script. And they agreed. Mm-hmm. And God has, and I mean, uh, I don't do it in my own home anymore, but I certainly w- would never be scripted. I mean, sometimes um, people, you know, if you do some sort of guest thing and people say, well, you know, what are you going to say? And I thought, well, you know, I'll decide when I open my mouth. <laughs> so when you've produced other shows and, and you were in uh, MasterChef, was it a, like a radically different experience? No, because again, no, not scripted. Scripted. I mean, right. occasionally you're you're called upon to do something scripted, which is just, uh, you know, as, as it were, sort of housekeeping, which right. is coming up, we've got Right, right, and right. I don't yeah. mind that. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I can do it in my own words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The terror of having to fill the silence is always the best way to go, I think. <laughs> There's something quite relaxing about not having responsibility. Because if you're a guest, like, it's not, it's kind of their problem. Right. You know, if I'm hopeless. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's their problem. Yeah. Um, but when the, the thing about doing your own program, especially where we, we do it, it's like doing a one woman show. Right. 
Right, you have weeks to come up on with end. the content for Weeks everyone. on end, so you're doing the coming up with the content, coming up with the mm-hmm. words. I control everything about the look of it. So I, you know, that it, it, I won't have a teaspoon I don't like. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid. So my head is full of things like I've got to stop by there and pick up this, oh or you know, I'm very everything. I mean, same as doing the books. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I will might change the color of the print, and I want everything. You know, so I'm very very um, controlling. But I hope in a non-aggressive way. <laughs> but, you know, if you work with talented people, they're okay about it because they don't have, they've got talent, not ego. Yeah. And um, I, so when I, when I do my recipes, I take photographs of everything. And I had a, I got a, a, a fantastic, photo- I always get a good photographer, but I got a very good photographer that I like to change the photographer because otherwise oh, the, uh, a different, a book has a different feel. The book has a different feel, and I want. And I wanted um, someone called Jonathan Lovekin, who's a very well. I don't normally get such well-established photographers. He's very well-established, and I wanted it because I wanted the book to have a more classic feel about the about the photos. Mm-hmm. And um, he was so wonderful because, um, and also as a general rule, I have uh, women, uh, a, a female team, because I find. Um, it's easier and but he <laughs> was fantastic fair. and he was fantastic and he didn't mind so he'd about to take something and I would have to say to him Jonathan I hope you don't mind and I'd show him like the world's worst <laughs> photograph of a particular dish this is how I would and say this it. is how I this is how I envisaged it do you know and he was so fine about it yeah. and after a while he'd say before he even did the photograph Nigella <laughs> uh, do you want to show me your version yes first? and in fact so he didn't mind so there's a a couple of photos which are completely like a better rendition of my oh, original <laughs> of my idea and of course when I first started I did get I, I got a wonderful photographer for my second book because the first book didn't have food photographs right um, an odd thing but that's true but the um, this my second book I got a photographer over from uh, Australia called Petrina Tinsley who's fantastic and it was pre-digital and I the had Polaroid I love that it's terrible <laughs> Yeah, this is here's my this is, of this is, no I had them in a photograph album oh, wow. and they were really bad and she you know she'd be very very tolerant looking at them <laughs> what does that mean like you had you you, you you know roast a chicken and then this you see you know how everyone says now oh everyone takes photographs I always say it's Listen, no, you were, you it's were, so were, much less embarrassing now because I used to do I remember <laughs> when my children were little, I'd go, you know, we'd go on holiday and we'd be in Tuscany. And instead of, like, there'd be one or two pictures of the children, but mostly it would <laughs> be tomato stall uh, in Tuscany, you know, a really nice, you know, mm-hmm. f- plate of, you know, potatoes. I mean, it, I, all I've ever done is take photographs of what I mm. of what I eat. So are you a big fan of Instagram then? I I am. I'm more of a Twitter person okay. because I'm. I always think of myself as more of a words person mm-hmm. than than a pictures mm-hmm. person. But I do like it. I do like it. I've um, and I, I resisted, and then I thought it is ridiculous since I all I do is take pictures of, of right. what I eat anyway. Um, yeah, from the right. beginning. Unfortunately, I haven't had a. I haven't been eating enough. Well, I haven't eaten. I haven't really been eating enough since I've been in the states. Mm. So I haven't been able. To, I've only had managed to post one picture. You don't right. have a backlog. Yeah, during during the book tour, it's tough. No, I don't. I, yeah, no, I don't have. I do sometimes, but then it doesn't feel right. And also, <laughs> I feel that you, it has to be that day. No, I don't mind doing later. I don't mind doing it a bit later. But yeah. like, since. You know, I I feel it would be nice to, but also, or I, and if the lighting's not good, I right. I feel mm-hmm. I can't really post it. In, you know, it's just a brown bit of shadow, 
Yeah. <laughs> no. You'd show it to your photographer and he'd <laughs> No, I mean, I didn't mind the other day. I took a picture of a garlic broth I had at the Breslin and it was so delicious. Mm. But it's not it, it's not the sort of food that is necessarily right, uh, photogenic. Right. But right. it's, you know, the best flavoured food often is, you know, a bit of a brown mess. Mm-hmm. Do you think about that for Instagram or are you thinking? No, I do. I sometimes say, I know it's brown, it's a stew, yeah. you know, live with it. <laughs> <laughs> when you moved from... The world of journalism and writing mm-hmm. for newspapers all the time into books and TV. Did you miss that? Did you miss the pace? I had an overlap. Okay, when you I had a lot book. of an overlap. Mm-hmm. I did carry on. I was I was an op-ed columnist for quite a long time after I'd started writing to books. kind of fill that need. No, I just you know man pay the bills. Yeah, but, you know. Um, and then I stopped. I missed. I I miss it. But then when you get out of action, I think it. It's hard to go back. Mm-hmm. The world has changed anyway. But I did, yes, I do miss it a bit. I mean, I used to, my favorite thing would be like the Guardian phones you up and it's midday and they need a piece about something and they need it by two. So you haven't really got much time to worry. That's my favorite mm-hmm. sort right, of writing. Right. But when you've got time to worry, like when you've got a regular column and you know you're filing at 4.30 on a Friday right. afternoon for the Sunday paper and you're thinking about it and so it's by you know from Wednesday evening onwards you start getting sort of a tense neck right. Right. you know yeah. so I don't miss that although fear fear continues to be the driving force in my life I always say in people, way? well I think people divide into two uh, sorts mm-hmm. possibly more than two sorts maybe we should end this ridiculous binary definition <laughs> of the world but Broadly speaking, I think people are either goal-oriented or fear-driven, and I'm mm. definitely fear-driven. I don't have an idea of where I want to go. I'm just I, I'm just frightened about not being able to do something well, and I and that. that. So it keeps you. So making when more the director shows says action, no, not so much action. I think, <laughs> and I have to talk. Yeah. Um, and in the same way as you know, I I leave everything to, to, to very near deadline, as all journalists do, and then mm. I just have to do it, and <laughs> it, it's. The most brilliant stuff anxious. comes when you're under pressure like that. I think so, but for some people it wouldn't suit. You mm-hmm. know? And you have a you have a fear of enjoying the couch too much. That I, I, somewhere you said like the laziest the laziest people are the ones that work the hardest. Yes, I, I think I so like because that. otherwise, really, I I could you know my goal in life generally is to lie down, <laughs> and um, so that's what I'm thinking. So that I think if I didn't work hard, I'd just lie down all yeah, the time because that'd be fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, about your journal, uh, your earlier journalism stuff. I know you talked uh, about deadlines. There was some story about you calling. You had to call a piece into into the typesetter at the oh, well, on Christmas Day. <laughs> that was the most thrilling. Yes. Yeah, so it was when I wrote a. It was a, a column, and it had to be in on. You know, we call it Boxing Day, but anyway, isn't you know twenty sixth mm-hmm. of December, and obviously no journalists were. You know, there was no one to give copy to. So you had to phone it to the. T- Phone it through to the typesetters, the printers, and um, it was a real. It was I, it was f- fantastic. Uh, what would you? What if I were American? I'd say it was. I was psyched, um, <laughs> but it's the, it, because I knew that. Otherwise, there'd just be a white space in the paper. Yeah, that was a real thrill filling with your bylines. Um, <laughs> yeah, they would put that just to shame yeah, her. I don't know, but it was so I did enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what the piece? Oh God, it was some drivel about whatever because there wasn't much going on. You know, if you write a column and it's it's Christmas Day, so it might have been something about that. It, yeah. I do think I remember writing something about Sim City, a short oh, wow. thing. So it was a. A newspaper where they used to do, they used to call it meat and two veg. So you'd have a, a bigish piece mm-hmm. with two little ones at the end of it, at the bottom of it. So the veg were always harder to write than the meat. And they were all yours? 
all three, the meat and yes, two veggies. Yes, that, right. was the, that, was that was the, the format of, yeah. of the column. So it would have been something like uh, an 800-word piece plus two pieces of about 150 words of nonsense <laughs> or 200 words. On similar themes? No, any old Just trivial. Anything. Just anything you like. Do you remember? Like, it must have been funny. And I, one of the reasons why I had to stop, because I felt, I remember once there was some bill going through Parliament and I was writing about it and I just felt... I know I've written about this before and I just can't remember which side I was on. <laughs> <laughs> you right. feel like I'm writing column number A43B. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I did enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But, you, you know, you, it's, there's something about um, comment is um, you, I feel, that, you, know, you know, the sort of bellows you have for making a fire. Mm-hmm. Like that. You yeah. have to hit the bellows to every opinion you have and inflate it and make it fire a bit more. And as and I think when you're younger, it's easier because one is so one is slightly um, overstated and uh, definite. Mm-hmm. And the older I get, I'm, yeah, I can see the other side. <laughs> I feel yeah, you can be wishy-washy as the you know, other. You can't. Person. You just can't be doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but but I did all <laughs> sorts of different things. It was you know a column that could be it could be political. Ish. I was never enormously political. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it might just be, you know, more or less that sort of what I noticed as I was walking down the street. <laughs> um, so I, I quite like that. I mean, I like the feeling of living off your wits, and I still feel I do have to do that. But I, you know, I miss, I do miss journalism slightly. I mean, I feel I can't really do it. I went back to it a bit mm-hmm. some years ago, but it, it's when. If people are writing about you and your opinions become it, the fact that you think a certain thing becomes the subject, you can't be a journalist. Hmm. Right, you're you have too, to disappear mm-hmm. a bit. Yeah, and I uh, and I like disappearing. I like the words to exist and not it to be about, about, about the person. You, the but person. I think the world has changed anyway because now I think it is more about the person anyway. I think that it's all become much more, um, I, I suppose, personality driven. Mm-hmm. Because in, in journalism, in, yes, in op-eds. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and I think obviously, but I think, you know, I mean, when I did my first column at all, um, I remember my husband was a journalist and uh, a columnist, and he said to me, you've written, you've been asked to write a column and you haven't actually said I once. You haven't done any, you know, and, uh, and I think you have to do that more now. Yeah. And what about the restaurant criticism side? You did that yes. for a little while as well. Is it, I did. Was it 14 years? What? 14 years of restaurant criticism? Well... No, I think t- probably 12. Um, but so what happened was is that I was asked, I used to do book reviews. Right. I was a young journalist, about 23, 24, I think. Um, and the editor of this periodical called The Spectator said to me, you know, we'd really like to have you writing for the front half of the paper because you know how editors always think like the books and arts and everything like that don't mm-hmm. really count. Mm-hmm. And... Um, <laughs> And I thought, and I and so we made an arrangement. I was going to meet up with him, and I just thought, oh, this is really awful. I don't, I don't want to write for the Spectator because I, don't, you know, I don't have those politics. It's called kind of a right-wing um, uh, periodical, and I don't have those politics. But um, I can't, as someone who's trying to make a name in journalism, say thanks, but no thanks. So I got it. So I <laughs> just read the same issue of the Spectator for, you know, quite a. I mean, I say right-wing, not compared to the things now, and um, and I thought. 
got this is obviously quite an affluent readership and there's nothing about food and restaurants and so why do I suggest that so I said I think you could be a restaurant column you should be a restaurant column you should, there should be food reviews it was quite interesting in England that time 1985 mm. food was was beginning to change and I was with Joe guys you know I said to him think of all the advertising revenue you'll get never got any advertising revenue <laughs> and um <laughs> I he said and I was quite lazy this is my lying down he said um I said, how about once a month? And he said, once a week. And we compromised on once a fortnight, mm. once, every, once every other week. And then he put someone called Jennifer Patterson, who used to cook the lunches there, mm -hmm. to write a recipe column. And she went on to become half of Two Fat Ladies. Oh, wow. Yeah. I love that show. And um, so that's how it started. And it was, and I, for me, it was very important. And this, in a way, led to my food writing, which mm -hmm. is, I felt it, that it was very important to represent the ordinary diner who, you know, you know, sometimes if I didn't write, if I wrote perhaps a not terribly obliging review, the chef or the restaurant would complain and say, I didn't know, I wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, qualified. But, you know, I said, well, then uh, I always said, we don't, if you're going to have a rule that only chefs can go to your restaurant, right. fine, you're taking money off people. Then I'm r saying I wanted to write really like what it felt like to go out for dinner there, what the food was like, what everything was like, the experience of being there. And then when I began to write about food again, it was about the experience as a home cook who right. didn't. I don't have any technique to my name. Mm -hmm. I can't even hold a knife properly, um, but I can make food that tastes good and that I want to eat. Right. But I so because of it, I understand that I want to. I need to describe the physical sensation of of what it feels like to be cooking at any stage, what the food looks like. And same when I do my TV, I'm a bit like a sports commentator, you know, <laughs> giving commentary, running commentary, what it looks like in the pan. Um, and I think that's very important. It's, it's it's it has to convey that. I think. I think chefs still give that criticism today to restaurant critics and I think you're right like you're supposed to represent the everyday diner not I the know. professional I know and so I mean the fact is um, there's a lot of ego mm -hmm. I mean again it goes back not with the really talented but m most people aren't really <laughs> talented and um, so they're you know they're, they're, and also you know I also think it is difficult because any creative work or any life, actually, whether it's good or, you know, if people are insecure. No one, and who likes to be criticised? I mean, it's quite normal not to like it. And I don't like that, I, I, I don't like that sort of um, bullying criticism, right. which is there to make the, the chef and everyone who works in the restaurant feel bad about themselves. But I think you can say, if you don't think there's, you know, that a particular flavour combination works. And I, and I feel now, especially because... You know, when I go to restaurants, I when I when you know when they run through like, and you know the chef has decided to you know pair you know this pork chop with you know a bit of elderflower and you know diced plantain, and I feel like sort of saying, and why, <laughs> you know, like for a dare, mm -hmm. you know, because I do think sometimes that this the, the 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 pressure to come up with something new is not conducive to good food. Right. And that's right. where I think to be the novel. home cook has the the home cook has the edge because mm -hmm. we're we're not charging money for our food. We're not you know making people feel oh well I couldn't do that at home. And all that so that we can concentrate on flavor rather than novelty. And when you do see professional chefs write cookbooks for home cooks, they always need 
a recipe tester or an author to translate everything for them because oftentimes they don't know how to make no. something that's for a regular kitchen. No, they don't at all. And also, I mean, the thing that I find you can always tell as well is that, you know, there are th- you need four ovens on at different temperatures. <laughs> and they use 20 pots for you something. Know, but because the, the reality is, is that if I'm writing a recipe and because I've always cooked it in, you know, as I always say, in what TV people call real time, mm-hmm. I know that... If I want that, those potatoes to go without meat, they have to be at the, uh, the same temperature in the oven and they right. have to fit. So I think that I, I might look at a restaurant cookbook and I might be inspired by it. The chances that I'll cook the recipes right. are remote. I mean, mm-hmm. I do sometimes, but, and, you know, if, and then some people are very good at it. Mm-hmm. You know the and in in a way, although there's a big difference, when I um, you know Ludo Lefebvre used to say to me all the time when we did the taste, you know, Nigella, you will say the you know the cook and the chef is different. Is the good cook is the bad cook? Is the good chef is the bad chef? And I'd say, no, you are right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing, you know. And he's just incredible. Right. Would you ever do a thing where someone you wrote a book with someone like that, where it was like? some crazy fancy uh, restaurant recipes translated? No, because I think they don't. And I think that, you know, in a sense, I I think that you, I would only ever take one or two elements mm-hmm. from, a, from a someone who wrote like that. Uh, just an idea of, of a pairing or something like that. I mean, Ludo's perhaps can do, he can do, because very, you know, wonderful, simple, mm-hmm. good French food mm. as well. So it's, it is different. But I, but I don't know that I would. And I, and I think that I understand why it's intimidating, because I find that those sorts of chefs often quite daunting, and, they're, and what they do mm. quite daunting. And I mean, he used to tease me, but he used to come and st- do come with you know comedy staring when I was chopping something <laughs> um, because you know obviously it probably it's probably very painful for him it's a bit like you know hearing someone screech with a very bad you know when they can't play the violin if you're a violinist so I think it probably did pain him to see to see the way I did things also the ingredients for those types of chefs are completely different like you write in in this book that you buy a jar of lemon preserved, let's say, and you want to use it throughout the book because mm-hmm. you know you don't want someone to just have to buy something for one dish. And, uh, yes, and, and I, I think in restaurant cookbooks, you often find that yes. where you have to go search out this obscure ingredient and then you have it in your pantry. And right. Yes. Yeah, so I do try and – I do always use things a lot. I mean, when um, – and often, you know, more in retrospect, I can see that certain – flavors dominate my first book the original uh, editor who commissioned it who then actually left but came over here and he always calls it the p uh the p marsala and rhubarb cookbook because <laughs> in it's a huge book and that's he says that's there all the time you know and i and i do feel and i and in one of my books i had to, when i use maple syrup again i had to say look i promise you i don't have you know, I, and I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have shares in, you know, Vermont, Canada, but, yeah, Canada, you know, because it really does, you know, sometimes we it does look, it. Yeah. it does look like yeah. that, but you know, you get enthusiastic, well, you have the jar there, and that's mm-hmm. in a way how home cooking starts, because you have to start from what do I have, right. Right. you've got a fridge foraging, of, fridge for, mm-hmm. yeah, the fridge forage, um, you know, coinage and Lawson, um, <laughs> I do, um, I do. I'm a very firm believer in mm-hmm. coining. <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, I think the restaurant criticism is really interesting because uh, you know in in digging around it's it's un it's unclear where the food really starts. But I read somewhere that you were cooking in college for your mm-hmm. for your like flatmates. Yeah. 
was there something about like buying you can't buy lamb fat anymore but like back then you would bake these uh, lamb ribs lamb ribs yeah breast of lamb I did I can buy lamb ribs now I did it no breast of lamb it was like 50 cents for a breast of lamb mm-hmm. now the reason why it's hard to get is that it's bought for kebabs but mm. and I used to spend hours you know not writing my essays but <laughs> cooking and, and um, you know I'd go to the market and I'd buy a huge sack of onions I was the queen of onion soup um, <laughs> and I think that why that's good is that I think that actually you have to cook a lot more with um, inexpensive ingredients mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. being on a budget can teach you to be a better cook mm-hmm. but I always say to people when I talk to them look there are two two basic ingredients in cooking time and money if you have not much money you've got to spend a lot of time mm-hmm. and if you've got very expensive ingredients you know that you don't need to spend much time you know a fillet steak doesn't take very long to cook right a baked yeah. potato does mm-hmm. um, and so I think and as obviously as a student you you're, you know you have time on your hands because you're meant to be working and instead <laughs> you're you know so you can spend three hours four hours on a yeah, you make a stew all day yeah <laughs> and in the same way as a journalist I found when I had to think about what I was going to write about I thought I found chopping and stirring helped my thoughts because you can't sit down and think right I'm going to have a thought now so I find uh, focusing on something else freeze a thought to bubble up into your head mm-hmm. so you liked cooking but the first uh, food thing you did professionally was food criticism right yes yes it was how has it changed now like you do you read the critics in the UK like Jay Rayner and Grace Dent I do yes I do and um, Adrian Gill was a very uh, good friend of mine mm-hmm. well I I no I th- I think it's interesting it makes me very grateful I'm no longer writing about restaurants and mm-hmm. that I don't have to go to them a lot um, but I read about food in all its mm-hmm. forms so I like that I mean I read food criticism of cities I'm not in as well so it's, it's because it is quite it's quite interesting to know what a place is like or right. and every now and then there's a sentence that is beautiful tastes good. well and I think especially in the UK and I think Adrian is a great example that it's not just a service column it's yeah. more of a cultural criticism or often an entertainment yes. column like the yes. way Jay writes he writes like an entertainment columnist yes so that happens an awful lot I mean it, there's it's Perhaps we in, in the UK we have a terrible tendency to feel that you know w- p- people will write about anything they want and then perhaps at the last paragraph they'll bring in something about the restaurant. Or <laughs> but generally speaking, um, <laughs> I think what's quite good about r- restaurant criticism is that the critic tends to be I'm talking about the UK mm-hmm. is it tends to be very honest about his or her likes. Yep. So you actually can under you, it's not pretending to be objective, uh, which, which it can't be. Mm-hmm. So it really is about this person's experience, and you you after a while, if you read them, you have an idea of what sort of food they like, what sort of don't food, and it gives you something to judge against right. whether you might agree or not. Um, I think there is a danger in criticism again, though, because I what I found very difficult about being a restaurant critic is the terrible places. Um, the column's easy to write, the fabulous places, most things are okay. Mm-hmm. They're okay, they're not great. And it's very hard to write well in those circumstances. So you either, people either go to one extreme or other in terms of what they're going to, or they um, overdo a reaction. And I think um, so often in many forms of criticism that things get praised too much mm-hmm. yeah it's so hard i hear from even our own critic here 
there's so many times when you go out to a place and it's just like, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty okay. good. Yeah, and then it's, it's his job to write something about I it. I know. And it's mm-hmm. very difficult to write yeah. about those sorts of places. And so I I took it quite seriously. Like, I'm I'm encouraging people to spend their money in this place. Well, how do I feel about that? But I also had a rule, which is I reviewed books as well. And I would never give a bad review to a first-time novel mm-hmm. or a first-time restaurant, you know, unless it had been incredibly hyped right. and it was right. an image we have a but similar I just rule feel here yeah. that why just if it's no good don't you know don't like if it's it. a little mom and pop and they're yes. starting out like no. why are you going to bring this power to just destroy them yes like, so i think that's quite important I, that's what i felt anyway so do you think that some of the criticism that's done over here uh when they when they go review like the big Times Square restaurants, no, I think the I think there's well, they're a, hyped. I have to oh, say, I think if they're hyped, then I think that's a fair game. But what I think is what I do think is that there is a tradition of assiduousness here that we don't have, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, you know that people don't you know people will you know you may have a long review and you've only been to a place once. Um, whereas I think that it's probably happening more now here, but generally speaking, in the bigger reviewers, they're going to go to quite a few times and really, uh, it's it's and have a fair assessment after that. So I, I think there's there's a lot. To, I think there's quite a good tradition of uh, restaurant reviewing here in this country. Do you get to go out now much, or do you like? I try to? not to. You try not to. <laughs> I do when I travel. I like going to restaurants, mm-hmm. but in, but when in London, I'm at home, no. I don't really want to a bit. I just feel also I I cook quite a lot, and I feel like I. I don't, I can't quite cope with the sort of multiplicity of ingredients when you go to restaurants. Mm. It's just too much of it and they're all too noisy. <laughs> but I do like it and I also feel that at the moment it seems every time a, a good restaurant opens it's quite far east in London. And I it is. Like, I don't know if I can quite cope with get, doing that. I do like it occasionally. Um, but generally speaking, I'm, I'm not, I've sort of, I feel burdened by the notion mm. rather than excited so I don't go yeah. I mean I go to certain there are certain places I will go for a treat and mm-hmm. I like that or you know there's family occasions and birthdays or, or whatever it might be but I'm I don't miss going to restaurants but I'm funnily enough but obviously when you have no choice when you're abroad I become obsessed with it when I travel Right. All I do is think about where I'm going to eat. Do you have a to-do list for your book tour? Well, I do, but or I've stopped busy? it now because I see that I'm, you know, working, at, at, you know, every hour. Every, every hour mm, yeah. So it's futile. Mm. For the gram, for the Instagram, you should be out there. <laughs> I know, but I somehow, but I don't. But anyway, so I don't know. I think I might, I might manage um, a, a meal out in Seattle. Ah. I'm hoping. Um, have I, you been through, will you go ever to any of the long slog tasting menus? No. I'd rather have ground glass <laughs> rubbed in my face. Yeah, if you don't like all those ingredients, then no. No, I just, but I I don't, I really, I really, really want to cry when I think I'm going to go and someone's going to tell me what to eat for that long. Well, then also for five hours. I know. I don't think I can do it anymore. That's what the, the, the only thing that is good pity is I think one's capacity to eat a lot um, diminishes as you get older. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I've quite got that. Although I said that to someone the other day who looked at me very sardonically as I was eating so much. But I know from, <laughs> for, compared to a normal person, I still can eat a lot. Mm-hmm. But compared to the eater I was, I can't. Yeah. Right. Having you know, but having said that, but if I went somewhere where it was really sensational, yeah. and I you know wasn't working the next day, I'd love to say, give me everything you've got. 
Right. You know, mm-hmm. I'd love. Mm-hmm. You know, so a good again, it goes back to are people really talented or not? A lot of people are just copying those who are talented, and so their tasting menu is not going to be wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, I would love to go to Noma, and I would I suppose, do yeah. that. I, that I'd be absolute. I would. I would. I would love that. So I, I think it's just in the general run of things. Mm-hmm. I'd have to. I, I'm cautious. Yeah, there are some exceptions. Because you think those are Noma, like. Um, Elbowly. These mm. are relevant parts of the culinary th- conversation, right? Yes, and I, I, yes, and I think, and and also, there there are people who understand that they're doing a different thing, um, and I I actually do want to go to um, the Rocker Brothers in Spain. Oh yeah, you know mm-hmm. I do want to go and eat their food every time I see it. I just think it looks it looks both interesting and it's going to taste good. So for this book, any favorite recipes people should know when they're buying um, it? The vegan chocolate cake that's not vegan. Um, that was the last book. That was book. the last book. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I have got an incredible <laughs> vegan. I have got an It's okay. It's still a fantastic recipe. Yeah. Um, and the, it, there's an incredible vegan uh, lemon and coconut cake in here, mm. yeah. which is divine. Um, I feel this book... I really feel this book is like a companion for everyday life. So there are so many recipes that mm-hmm. I think this make just make it easier at home and mm-hmm. think about what to cook. There's a there's a cho- chicken tray bake with frozen peas, but frozen peas Ooh. in the oven that is absolutely riveting, oh. and it it feels so so deliciously wrong to be putting frozen peas in a hot oven. But anyway, it really works. Um, there's lots, you know. It, there's, I feel that. In a way, there's so much the sort of food that you can just put in the oven and not mm-hmm. think about, or that you're going to cook quite mm. easily, um, you know, on the stove. So I think this is this really is about, uh, I suppose, the sort of the food that both matters and has matters. It tastes good. It's easy to make. It mm-hmm. tastes good, but it has some emotional resonance as well. I have a question. Yes, you, uh, you, I mean, roast chicken. I would say, yeah, roast chicken's kind of your thing. Yeah, right. This book only has one roast chicken, and it is butterflied. Are you converting to butterflying? I I I do like a bit of surgery. <laughs> I'm not good with a knife, but if I can get my scissors open and you know take a, you know do that chicken mm-hmm. and then crush the bones, I enjoy it. I've always done butterflying as mm-hmm. well. Um, it's only because I I essentially think. Um, I, I'm not a churning up machine, so I've done a lot of roast chicken recipes, and I could carry on, and because I would do it. But essentially, you just need to get a good chicken, you put it in the oven. You know, mm-hmm. it's not. Yeah. Um, but no, I. But mm. no, but the, this the ch- this chicken with miso and the sesame. Yeah. Oh mm. my god, it's so good! And funnily enough, it's what I always cook as my last meal at home before I go on a road, and it's oh, wow. what I eat when I go back. You sometimes have to stop yourself from making the same recipe because yes. it'll, it'll stop you from trying new stuff. I know, I do have to. But I allow myself, you know, quite a Some lot. Some right. No, I do allow myself. There's a Moroccan vegetable pot that I make all the mm-hmm. time because I just can do it, you know, my sleep. And, you know, the, there's a chocolate olive oil mousse that I can make in my sleep. Mm. Um, but it's, I think... I think we all repeat things, of and course. that's good. And you, and then every now and then you just move on to another thing and repeat it. I think there's one a waffle recipe in here that our coworker had inspired him to go out and buy a waffle maker as soon as he saw it, and now he's been making waffles all week. <laughs> I'm so thrilled. <laughs> yeah, he so, might even be here. And <laughs> no, and I and I too liked it, and I felt like you know I was I was actually watching. Um, what was I watching? I was watching Madam Secretary. Mm. Yeah. And they made waffles then, so I missed all the plot because I was just obsessing <laughs> about the waffles. <laughs> and, um, and I love it too. It's a stovetop one. It's not yeah. an electric yeah. one, which is much easier to manage because um, it doesn't take up as much room. No, you see, and it's just, 
It's very, I think that's the thing about about home cooking, and I suppose what I'm trying to talk about in this mm-hmm. book, which is it is a balance that you are enjoying um, repeating some things and you're enjoying the comfort of the familiar, but there is also this important thing, which is the exuberance of the new, mm-hmm. and that's very important in life. And I think if you can get a cookbook or a way of cooking for yourself that that encompasses both those things, then it it, it adds to it adds to joy in the world. And, awesome. uh, you know, it's needed. You need to add to that. On that note. Well, I have one oh, more. You have one, one more? more. Okay. Uh, I read that you fell in love with avocado in the 70s. Mm-hmm. What is it like watching the avocado become everyone's favorite when, you know, you, you feel like you had a little thing no, with the avocado? I, no, uh, well, but it, but it was very different then. I mean, in fact, when I did an avocado toast of course. on in I TV, it, that, <laughs> I think they increased sales by 30% or something. I know. I didn't have, I don't Twitter have else, Twitter stock also went up by, I think, 30%. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think, look, there's two things I think. One, I think, I think more than two things. <laughs> okay. No more binaries. No more binaries. Maybe I just You're like avocados or you don't. Okay. No, I've, this is what I feel. I feel that enthusiasms are nothing if they can't be shared. And I also feel, and this is something I used to say to my children when they used to moan about someone copying the school, that you're either a follower or a leader. And if you're a leader, you can't complain about people following you. Mm. <laughs> um, and says the avocado leader. Says the leader. avocado leader. <laughs> but no, I don't know I'm avocado leader. But what I mean is, is that I do, I see my work, if you like, mm. as about conveying enthusiasm. So I'm happy if people share in that. And I want to, I want to infect people mm-hmm. with my enthusiasms and for my, why I like something. Or I want to make people feel this when people say they read one of my books or they read an intro to a recipe and they feel they want it, they're sort of in there in the kitchen cooking without noticing it. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do. Cause I think that's the important thing is to make people feel they can do something and show them how easy it is. There's no, you know, that I don't want to be mythologizing or making things seem difficult, you know, and mystifying. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm about. Well, on that note. On that note. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. At my table. Everybody check it out. Yep. Great. 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 Yay. Thank Thank you you. so much. Thank you so much for listening to The Eater Upsell. Again, if you liked the episode, please rate it, subscribe to it, and pass it along. And that's all we have for you this week. Catch you next week with some fresh content. About Tex-Mex. Tex-Mex. Theater Upsell is hosted by Amanda Clute, Eater's Editor-in-Chief. Yay. And me, Daniel Janine. I Woo! am a, an associate producer at Eater. Correct. Fox Media's engineer is Miles Ewell. Carrie Clements handles all of our booking and studio logistics. And Maureen Genone Fitzgerald is our exec producer.